Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Christian Carl on the show, and we'll be talking about his very thought-provoking new book, Strange Rebels, 1979 and the Birth of the 21st Century. I was telling him in the pre-interview, I have a friend that has written several books, the thesis of which... Uh, was that 1989 was the most important moment in uh, modern history. Uh, he, he told me after writing this book that he was tired of 1989 now, so he'll probably be happy to see 1979 uh, put forward as uh, the crucial moment in 20th century history. Of course, we won't know for 500 years, but it's a lot of fun for everybody to propose these things. And Christian makes a pretty convincing case that we should really look at 79 as the moment at which the events that led to 89 and 91, I would add, uh, started to appear. Maybe even earlier, I don't know. But it's a fascinating book, and I hope people go out and buy it. So, Christian, welcome to the show. Hello, Marshall. Um, let me ask you uh, to begin the interview by saying a little bit about yourself. Yes, well, um, gosh, I'm not sure that's a very interesting subject. But uh, <laughs> I'm from Midland, Texas, which is the same town that uh, our – esteemed former President George W. Bush came from. And uh, I attended a boarding school in New England called Deerfield Academy. And then through various uh, routes, I ended up at Yale College in New England. And as soon as I graduated from Yale, I basically went off to live in Europe. And I returned to the United States about 25 years later after a career as a foreign correspondent. Uh, I've reported from about uh, I've kind of lost track, but I've reported for about 50 countries. I lived for long periods in Berlin, in Paris, in Moscow, in Tokyo, and Hong Kong. And uh, I reported on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, mostly for Newsweek. And uh, I, I, I really have to say that I've been very, very lucky. I've had an amazing career. I've done a lot of, a lot of really, really fun stuff, and certainly... There's a lot of that experience that has gone into this book. Uh, this book is a work of history, but I am not a historian. I'm a journalist and a reporter, and uh, I think that does that does shape the way that I tell the stories that the book has to tell. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were here, I would teach you the secret historian's handshake, which they gave me when I got my PhD in history. So, oh, wow. Yes. Well, you have to teach me that. Yes, I absolutely will. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big, great big secret. So, and, yeah, I'll probably get in trouble for teaching Excellent. it to you. But in any case, you, you could be an honorary historian on this show. So tell us why you wrote uh, Strange Rebels 1979 and the birth of the 21st century. Well, the, the whole project has its genesis in uh, some of the reporting that I did when I was in Afghanistan for Newsweek right after 9-11. I ended up... Uh, doing some reporting from the Afghan Afghanistan from the hinterlands in Afghanistan and then after a couple of weeks I finally ended up in Kabul right after the city fell to the to the uh to the um, northern alliance the anti-Taliban forces so it was a very interesting moment to be in Kabul because 
uh, reconstruction hadn't really begun, but the people of the city were very relieved to be rid of the Taliban at that time, and they were not yet disillusioned by the presidents of the Americans and their allies. And it was especially interesting because you had the impression of a city that was just waking up after a long nightmare. Uh, and, you know, we lived in a house which had uh, shag carpeting and those tub tubular aluminum light fixtures. Oh, yeah. It was a ranch-style house mm -hmm. um, that we were renting from some uh, higher-ups in, in, in Kabul. And there was a rumor that some Al-Qaeda uh, elite had lived in the house before we moved in. Um, but as one of my colleagues put it, it was just the kind of house you'd expect to see the Brady Bunch in. <laughs> uh, it was really like a strange throwback to my childhood, which I must add took place during the 1970s. Yeah. And so you're in this very nice 1970s house. And when you get out, when you walk out of the house and you, you, get, you get a taxi, you find yourself in a 1970s car, sometimes with an 8-track tape player. And you're driving around in a city filled with 1970s buildings because that's when Kabul experienced a big building boom. Uh, both the Russians and the Americans were trying to woo the Afghans, and so a lot of foreign money was pouring in. And all the ministry buildings were built at that time. And after a while, you find yourself saying, well, wait a minute, uh, well, this is very interesting, but why so much progress in the 1970s, not much afterwards? And at a certain point, I found myself going into the bookstore, and in the bookstore, I found these amazing postcards of Afghanistan in the 70s, um, including women without burqas, right, mm -hmm. posing very, in a very relaxed way, in a very secular way, shall I say, and uh, pictures of the beautiful hotel with the turquoise water in the swimming pool. That hotel has been dry for, you know, at the time I saw this postcard, that hotel had been dry for 30 years. And what happened was that something really, really epochal and horrible happened at the end of the 1970s, and that was the invasion of the Soviet forces on Christmas Day, 1979. And so this whole experience prompted me to think about this dramatic breaking point in the history of this country, this moment when history started running in reverse, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought about writing about this, but after a while, I began to realize that it wasn't just an, Afghan, an Afghanistan story. Um, after Afghanistan, of course, I ended up in Iraq, and in Iraq, you encounter the same thing. A lot of development during the 1970s. Iraqis speak very fondly of the 1970s as a time when things were going great. Um, and in 1979, Saddam Hussein became president. Then you had the war with Iran, you had the Gulf War, and things kind of hit a wall again for that country in 1979. Um, and for a variety of reasons, I chose not to write about Iraq so much in this book, but it just got me thinking what happened at that precise moment in history. <clears throat> mm -hmm. yeah, this and is when what, you begin thinking about that, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. And when you begin thinking about that, you begin to notice a lot of these things that happened at the same time. And you begin to see uh, the things, the commonalities of these things that happened at the same time, that these were not things that were just merely simultaneous, but that they have some interesting underlying features that they share. And that was really the, the idea that got me started for the book. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, this is what I was going to say. This is what historians call a conjunctural moment. I'm not sure what they mean by that, but I think they mean that things come together 
now, the question is always whether they come together in a systematic way, that is, whether they are part of larger forces that produce something or whether they come together independently, that is, they are accidentally related. And we'll talk about that in the course of talking about the book. But before we uh, talk about whether there's anything to unify these or not, um, let's talk about the, uh, the changes themselves and the characters, which you very nicely present as emblematic of these changes. There are four or five of them, depending on how you reckon uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, um, Margaret Thatcher, John Paul II. The four uh, protagonists that you mentioned are all very prominent in the book. And uh, the the fifth story really in my book is the story of Afghanistan. And it, it, it often gets forgotten because it didn't have such clear, vivid protagonists as the other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there are really two figures from there, and one is Ahmed Shah Massoud, who is the Mujahideen leader who was killed by Al Qaeda in 2001, mm-hmm. right after the 9/11 attack. Yeah. Um, and the other is Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who is still out there, still an around, ally yeah. of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Sorry? Yeah, he's still around. He's still around. Uh, we're still trying to get him. Uh, and those two guys really are the exemplary figures for Afghanistan because they both stand for this new breed of Islamic revolutionaries. Which was real, who were really a new species at that time. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the arguments I'm making in the book. That, you know, we tend to regard political Islam as just part of the background noise nowadays. It's impossible to imagine global politics without it. And yet, uh, at the time, it was really something quite new. And when the Islamic Revolution began in Iran, for example, a lot of Western policymakers were casting around for some some way to conceptualize what they were seeing, and they couldn't quite get it right. And, for example, I was quite struck by the fact that a lot of people at the time uh, groping around for comparisons uh, drew an analogy between Ayatollah Khomeini and Gandhi. They said, <laughs> oh, he's a Gandhi-like figure. Mm-hmm. And that was because nobody else could think of a religious figure who was orchestrating an uprising against you know, authoritarian power or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very good indicator of how dramatically things changed at that time. This whole notion of political Islam was really a newcomer on the political scene at the moment I'm describing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk just a little bit about the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, he was in Paris for a long time, and he was on the American payroll, if I recall, uh, before the Mossadegh um, coup. Uh, and uh, so could you tell us a little bit about him? Well, Ayatollah Khomeini is, a, is really a fascinating character. Uh, the, you know, we often talk about the Islamic Revolution as um, somehow self-evidently about, you know, the return of Islamic fundamentalism to the political scene, but it's really a lot more complicated than that. Ayatollah Khamenei himself was regarded with great suspicion by a lot of his fellow clerics, because a lot of the other leading ayatollahs at the time thought that this whole idea of Islamic government, of having clerics actually run the government, was really quite unorthodox. And this is a really important thing to remember because as much of a traditionalist as he was, was, Ayatollah Khomeini was also an improviser. He was also a political inventor who fused a lot of different things into a new discourse in the way that really no other cleric of his time did. So, for example, he talked not only about, you know, traditional Shiite customs and values, but he also talked a lot about colonialism and, you know, American imperialism and hegemony. And these were all terms that he had borrowed very, very self-consciously from the left, because a lot of people who were 
uh, also working for the fall of the Shah during the revolution uh, were leftists. Some of them were secular nationalists, but they were by no means all Islamic revolutionaries. And so Khomeini understood that he had to make common cause with these people. And um, in some of his Islamic views, he was really quite unusual. He was, an, he was a very intense mystic, a student of what some people might call, well, you know, the Shiites have their own term, but what some people might call Sufism. Mm -hmm. And he wrote mystical Sufi poetry. And a lot of the other clerics, again, thought, oh, dear, well, this is really not done. This is not what a proper, respectable Shiite cleric indulges in. And I think when I wrote this book, the most fascinating thing to me about Khomeini was how he blended tradition and uh, the political thinking that surrounded him at the time. Mm -hmm. He's a very, very interesting character for that reason. Mm -hmm. Well, he spoke explicitly, I think you say in the book, he spoke explicitly about an Islamic state, that is a state built on Islamic principles. This was an unorthodox thing at the time among, I guess, orthodox uh, Iranian clerics, isn't that right? Absolutely, absolutely. He was building on the ideas of people like uh, Saeed Qutb, who mm -hmm. was also very influential for the Muslim Brotherhood, and then more radical people like Osama bin Laden. He was building on ideas like that, but translating them into a very specifically Shiite context that we probably don't need to go into here. Um, but again, he was the only Ayatollah to write something like that, he wrote an entire, he had a series of lectures, as you said, called Islamic Government, in which he outlined his proposals for theocratic rule. Mm -hmm. And again, many of the other clerics at the time strongly disagreed with his views. This was by no means a consensus view at the time. And it shows you what an astute political leader he was, that he ultimately um, brought everyone around uh, and, and ended up on top. And he never succeeded in convincing everyone, but for the uh, clerics that he couldn't convince, he had other measures like, you know, jail or uh, torture or even, you know, hounding them to death. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a chapter of the, of the Iranian Revolution that I think Westerners often fail to appreciate. Mm -hmm. And what is that chapter? Go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Well, just this whole issue that, um, you know, as the revolution progressed, he... Uh, very systematically did away with his secular nationalist and leftist opponents. And then once he felt strong enough, he really uh, uh, went, went to work undermining his own opponents within the clergy. Mm -hmm. So people like Ayatollah Shariat Madari, who was a very powerful cleric, who had his own political party and um, hundreds of thousands of supporters, and Khomeini had to move very, very skillfully and deftly to undermine Shariat Madari and ultimately just drove him out of politics entirely. Um, and there was another leading cleric, Ayatollah Talekhani, who was at first a supporter of the revolution and then became very disturbed by the human rights violations and, and abuses that he saw happening around him. And again, Khomeini was very effective in getting this man to you know, very, very powerful religious leader and getting him to, to, to go quiet and ultimately just pushing him out of the political scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the most amazing stories is actually the story of Khomeini's own hand-picked successors, Ayatollah Montazeri. Um, this is basically like, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, it's hard to think of a comparison really. This was his hand-picked successor, his dearest student, and for much of the 1980s, Montezeri's picture was being displayed in Iran almost on the same, almost on, on a par with Khomeini's. 
And then gradually Montezeri himself began to criticize the government for uh, these various human rights abuses that he, that he was seeing. And Montezeri was stripped of the role of successor, and they picked somebody else in his place. And he was turned into a non-person. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a fascinating story because, you know, we in the West, we tend to see Iran as this kind of monolithic state where, you know, everybody is an Islamic conservative and everybody toes the line. Of course, in reality, it's anything but. And you can trace this all the way back to the revolution itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this, uh, and we'll ask this about each of these figures, these four figures. How did he come to hold these radical views? And why didn't he, in, in a sense, one of the frames in which you put the entire book is that it's a reaction against uh, sort of what we might, what, well, it's a, it's a difficult term to use, progressive uh, forces. And in this case, it, uh, in, in the case of Iran, we have westernization under the, uh, the, the Shah. So how, how did he come to uh, oppose this? Again, I, I, this word progressive bothers the heck out of me um, because I never really know what it means. And it means different things in different contexts. So how did he come to yeah. oppose uh, this progressive um, movement. Well, you're right. I'm I'm uncomfortable with the word too. It's it's kind of the only word we've got. Um, yeah. My my argument in the book is that all of my protagonists are reacting against various socialist communist ideas, right. um, which were very dominant for most of the 20th century. Yep. Um, and Khomeini is reacting, as you said, to the Shah's modernization program, and he's also reacting to the leftists within Iran who are part of the opposition to the Shah. Because Iran, another thing that everyone always forgets, is that Iran had one of the most powerful communist parties in the non-communist world in the 1950s, mm-hmm. in the 1940s and 50s. And they exercised immense influence over you know, what people in the opposition were thinking about. Um, and Khomeini was a, a, a member of a breed of clerics. There were some other clerics before him who... Who felt that secularization and modernization was going too far, right? Mm-hmm. And in this respect, he shared that was quite a common view among the Shia clergy. They really felt that under the Shah and under his father, who was also quite a relentless modernizer, that they had lost a lot of the social status that they had enjoyed in earlier periods. And as uh, as pious Muslims, they were very disturbed by a lot of the outward manifestations of Westernization. Uh, like, you know, uh, uh, movie theaters where men and women were sitting together, alcohol, uh, you know, rather daring art for which the Shah's wife had a particular fondness. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, I think, conspired to create a kind of siege mentality among the Shia clergy and among Islamic traditionalists in general. Um, but Khomeini was the one who really went the farthest in, a, in, in, in crafting a response. Many of the Ayatollahs before him got into trouble with the Shah in various ways, but none of them went as far as he did in proposing a solution. And I think that has a great deal to do with his specific personality. He was a very, a very, very intense, fanatical person um, in, his, in his personal life and his attitudes. He reminds me a great deal of Lenin, who, mm-hmm. you know, of whom they once said, you know, he... He lived Revolution 24. He lived, ate, sleep, and spoke, slept and spoke the Revolution 24 hours a day. And I think with Khomeini, you have with Khomeini you have this very similar sort of quality of single-mindedness, which he applied to this to this counter-revolution. One historian called it re- revolutionary traditionalism, which I think is a great 
mm-hmm. a great phrase. Mm-hmm. And so he borrowed a lot of tricks from his opponents. He was a good learner, um, but he put it all to the service of this great goal for which he worked very, very single-mindedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's turn to another cleric, if uh, that's all right. Let's talk about John Paul II. Um, and let's ask the same question. How did he come to be – I mean – in the frame of your book, he appears as an anti-communist. Uh, I, so h- how did he come to hold not only anti-communist views, but I, I guess um, pretty strident ones? Yeah, well, he was an anti-communist, uh, very profound, profoundly anti-communist. But what people tend to forget is that he also had very strong suspicions about Western capitalism as well. Uh, in a long tradition of Catholic thinkers who were uh, not entirely comfortable with uh, you know, the capitalist with capitalist society. And I think this is all shaped very strongly by his own experiences. Um, I, I think I mentioned at one point, he's probably of all the, the, the figures that I describe in my book, I think he's probably the smartest. He was an immensely brilliant man. He, he obtained two doctorates. Uh, he spoke, nobody really knows how many languages. And he was very, very influenced by his readings. He was a brilliant, a very, very, a very well-read intellectual. He read a lot of the Marxist classics. And I think what shaped him the most was this unique standing that he had as someone who personally lived under both Nazism and Stalinism. And so he was the first pope who was also a theorist of human rights. And um, he, in fact, wrote at great length and very, very persuasively about his own vision of Catholic theology, which was based very much on a, on a philosophy called personalism, which placed the human individual at the center of everything. Um, and uh, so he wrote very, very eloquently about human rights. It was clear that he had he thought about the subject extremely deeply based on his own experience with two totalitarian systems. But he was also very, very aware of the, of the, of the success of secularization in Europe after the war, he was very, very sensitive to the problems of the working class in a way that a lot of American conservatives probably wouldn't be very comfortable with, right? So he, he wrote a lot and thought a lot about the whole issue of labor. And sometimes, you know, his language is very much the language of a, you know, a social activist. So his objections to communism were very much objections to a system that he saw as denigrating the value of the individual and uh, along the way denigrating the value of the nation that he attached himself to so closely, which was, of course, Poland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that he does is, uh, this is in 79 again, and I even remember this. I was a little kid at the time, but um, he visits Poland. And this, as you say in the book, this nobody was under any illusion that this wasn't really a break with the past. Can you talk a little bit about that visit? Yeah, it was uh, it was huge, right? I'm I'm sure you you know you may well have been very impressed by this even when you were a kid because it was such an enormous event and everybody realized it was an enormous event at the time because here you have this communist country well behind the Iron Curtain um, where the Communist Party is running every aspect of life. There are no organizations outside the Communist Party except the Catholic Church, which the Communist Party had to allow with gritted teeth because it was such a central institution in Polish life. And um, so the spectacle of a Polish pope arriving in Poland to celebrate a pilgrimage in his own country was certainly a dramatic thing to see. Mm -hmm. And the people in the Kremlin, as we now know, were extremely worried about it, right? 
we have a lot of memos now from the archives where they're talking about this, and they attached great importance to the cement. Now, we all understood that this was dramatic at the time, and it looked dramatic with all those millions of Poles taking to the streets to greet John Paul II. But what we didn't know at the time was how this became a kind of catalyst for a whole series of other developments. Um, I talked about how John Paul II was very sensitive to labor issues, and one day that he spent during his pilgrimage in 1979 was devoted to working men and women whom he welcomed to a big mass. And the communists were very sensitive to this because they felt he was honing it, honing in on their territory, right? And how right they were, because next year, the very next year, a year later, uh, the first independent trade union called Solidarity mm -hmm. was, was formed at the Lenin shipyard in uh, Gdansk in mm -hmm. Poland. And they very explicitly cited the, the Pope as their protector, their patron. And uh, that labor movement spawned an entire sequence of other events that I think led directly to the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe in 1989. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I tell you what, the thing I really remember about the Pope's visit, he, he actually makes a little tour of, of Poland, but he was on a world tour at the time, and he came to Iowa. And I was in Kansas at the time, and I had uh, friends that went to see him in Iowa. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it, was like, I, you know, it was just that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't resist saying that he, that was really what was, was meaningful to me is that the Pope was coming to Iowa. I mean, who had, Pope never came to Iowa. What was the story with that? So, but this course, really, that's exactly, that's, that's such a great example of what was unusual about this new Pope, right? He, he was a real globalist and a globalizer and he took the church to places nobody had ever thought it would go. Mm -hmm. And this, so this sort of re represents a kind of seismic shift in Eastern European as communist politics when he, he shows up there. And then, as you say, events begin to unfold in Poland. Well, let's move across the border into the Soviet Union and talk a little bit about the, uh, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and the uh, forces that rise up against that invasion. You, they're equally as important for, I think, destabilizing the Soviet Union. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I agree. I, I think they were very important for destabilizing the Soviet Union. What happened was that in 1978, uh, communists took power in Afghanistan. And of course, this was part of a longer story. I was mentioning that in the 70s, Afghanistan was a country that seemed to be developing quite rapidly. And uh, it's worth remembering that in the 1970s, Islamic parties or Islamic politicians played almost no role in what was happening in Afghanistan. They had a secular, modernizing president who was the most important politician of the decade, Mohammad Daoud Khan, and then the communist parties, which were very, very powerful, very, very strong, and enjoyed the support of the Soviet Union. So in 1978, those parties overthrew Mohammad Khan, Mohammad Daoud Khan, and seized power. And they started almost immediately with a very radical reform program that most Afghans didn't like because they saw it as deeply un-Islamic. And so a, a revolt broke out in the countryside almost immediately after the communists took power. And it continued for months and months and months and, and ultimately led the Afghan Communist Party to turn in on itself uh, with one politician within one communist politician actually ex performing a coup against the leader and installing himself in power. And when this happened, the Soviets, who'd been watching all of this with great anxiety, finally said, oh, good Lord, we can't allow this to go on. We've got to do something. 
Um, and it's important to remember, the revolution in Iran is happening next door. Neither the Russians nor the Americans understood where that was going at mm -hmm. the time. Pakistan, on the other side of uh, Af Afghanistan, was very much on the side of the United States. And then at the same time, in the course of the year 1979, as we'll discuss in a few moments, China had very decisively turned away toward the United States. Um, they'd formed, the Chinese had formed a new alliance with the United States. So the Russians were feeling rather pressed and uncertain about their position in South Asia. And they were extremely anxious about the prospect of losing their only real uh, satellite in that part of the world. And of course, they had a direct border. They bordered directly on Afghanistan. So they decided to intervene. But they were so nervous about it that they didn't even really, the Politburo, the leaders of the Soviet Union at that time, didn't even really take a proper decision. They drew up a memo that didn't even, just said the situation in A, without saying what they were talking about. And then they all kind of signed off on it very very hurriedly and very grudgingly, which kind of shows you how reluctant they were to get involved in this mess. They knew it was a mess, but they couldn't help it. And, you know, the rest is the story of the Soviet intervention that lasted until, you know, for the next 10 years. And probably, I believe, I am of the school that believes that uh, this was instrumental in hastening the demise of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I mean, I, th I think that's right. We know uh, now uh, from basically what uh, Gorbachev and these uh, other Politburo officials said that they, they thought about Afghanistan a lot and they saw that it was a sign of the weakness of the Soviet Union. Uh, they also saw increasing ethnic tension in that area and they were worried about it and didn't know what to do about it. And so it presented something to them that was really surprising and they didn't have any solution for. In addition to the fact that it kind of, I think that this is, you know, again, and I speak as somebody who's a Russian historian, I don't know a lot about the modern period, but we see something like civil society uh, form in the Soviet Union against the war. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking about mothers groups, the mothers of Afghan, uh, uh, um, of so Russian soldiers that have been killed in Afghanistan. They, they form groups and uh, they actually get a lot of public support. And the party has to recognize this as well. So, well, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think, for example, the impact of uh, the way the war was reported in the Soviet media was also very important because the government kept lying to its people. Um, and these, the bodies of these boys kept coming home from Afghanistan, sometimes in sealed coffins because mm -hmm. they'd been horribly mutilated or, you know, damaged. And people knew this was happening, but the official media weren't talking about it. And I think that... that Aside from that very important thing that you mentioned about the creation of civil society, I think this, the war in this way did a lot to undermine people's trust in the regime. Because it's one thing if you know, the government is going on and on about some enemies of the people who are kind of vaguely defined and all you know is they're bad and, okay, great, we'll go ahead and persecute them. It's not my family. But then your son comes back in a zinc coffin and they right. won't let you see his face before you bury him. Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes a very different thing when you don't even know why the kids are over there fighting this war. Um, I think it played an enormous role in undermining public confidence in the official narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, that's, I think that's exactly right. It, it did not, really. It, people, yeah. the, the Soviet Union lost a lot of legitimacy that it had gained basically in World War II and then in the 70s in the moments at which – well, 60s and 70s is the moment at which the Soviet economy was actually growing because it had not grown for a long time. It did not grow in the right. 80s. And uh, really this sort of uh, 
And it showed the, the deficiencies of the system, and the people on top even realized that. And Gunnarbachev talks about this explicitly that they just didn't know what to do, uh, and exactly. so they looked for other. You know, they looked for other uh, options. Unfortunately, they didn't really look very, very far. Uh, that uh, I have a friend that likes to say that the Soviet Union was destroyed by um, idealism. That is, they didn't ever really depart from communist principles, even when, when the situation suggested that they should. Uh, now let's turn to China, where in yep. fact uh, they did realize, or Deng Xiaoping did uh, realize, that it might be time to roll back uh, Stalinism in an effort to improve the lives of people. He's a very interesting character, Deng Xiaoping. And also, incidentally, you point out in the book that he, like uh, Jean-Paul II, kind of begins his reign with a trip. Yeah, very nice. Very, yeah. very good comparison. Yeah. Well, that trip that he took to the United States was in January and February of 1979 was absolutely crucial because it marked just how far China had decided to turn away from the communist past. Um, you know, the Sino-Soviet split started much earlier in the early 60s, but uh, Mao certainly was very cautious about uh, turning China towards the United States. And then finally he did so in his famous meetings with Nixon in the early 70s. But it took until 1979 for the Chinese leadership to make a strategic decision to really embrace relations with the United States. And Deng decided to do that because it fit perfectly with his new program of, of economic pragmatism. Um, he became leader of China at the end of 1978 and he immediately made it clear to the senior party people, to his colleagues, that from now on the emphasis was going to be on economic development rather than the crazy revolutionary ideas of Chairman Mao. And unlike the Soviets, he made a very, very clear decision to leave the past where it was. He did not want to talk about the, too much about the crimes that Mao had been committed under Mao and in some cases, which Deng Xiaoping and his colleagues were personally responsible for. Um, so he said, we're not going to talk about Mao. We're not going to get lost in the past. We're not going to have de-Stalinization the way that Khrushchev tried to do it in 1956. Um, we're going to leave, let those sleeping dogs lie. We're going to focus entirely on economic development. And the reason why I include him in my 1979 story is that 1979 was the year when the Chinese really began to free up their economy. And they did two things that were very crucial. And again, your comparison with the Soviet period is very illuminating, right? Because these are exactly the things the Soviets could never bring themselves to mm -hmm. do. And the first was they allowed this, this thing called the household responsibility system, which was a return to family farming. Um, Chinese farmers, who of course made up the overwhelming majority of the population, suddenly had a chance to farm for themselves. Mm -hmm. They had to give a quota to the state and then the rest they could keep for themselves. They could grow whatever they wanted, how they wanted to do it. It was up to them. Um, it's a bit like uh, Lenin's policy in, in the new economic, uh, like Lenin's new economic policy, the NEP, in the 1920s. And Deng Xiaoping actually studied those policies in some detail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other big thing was this thing called special economic zones, yeah. which were uh, basically designed to bring in foreign investors and have them invest in Chinese uh, you know, Chinese, cheap Chinese labor, and build stuff in China. And that was also an absolutely revolutionary development. You know, that something like that never would have occurred to the Russians, I think. Yeah. But 
um, he Dung had toured East Asia. He'd seen the Japanese. He'd seen Singapore. He knew that Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, were both immensely successful, inhabited by Chinese people just like his own people. Um, but they'd become successful by opening up and allowing outside investment and promoting open financial exchange with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's what he decided to do. And now, today, we see the results. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you're right about the power of example because the Russians had no such example. I mean, they could look across the uh, frontier, I suppose, to uh, places in Eastern Europe that were moderately more uh, prosperous and the Soviet Union, at least on a per capita basis, but they couldn't look at anything like Taiwan, where people earned hundreds of times what the average uh, Chinese person earned, and largely in a, in a very small market, and largely because they had uh, pursued foreign investment. I mean, he clearly saw this, that this is the way to go. Right, exactly. Yeah, the money needed to go someplace. I mean, he knew something very elemental, that the money needed to go someplace, and uh, so why not China? You know, if you can't get a great return on Federal Reserve bonds, then you can send it to China and earn a lot more. I mean, he knew that. And I think that 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 was a really remarkable thing. And this is something that Russians, at least in my estimation, just never understood. They never understood that the value of of direct foreign investment. And uh, and but how did they how did how did how did uh, Deng Xiaoping convince his uh, um, his comrades that this was the best thing to do? Well, he convinced the um, the more pragmatic ones. I think through force of argument and by saying, look, you know, Mao said that we all had to be equal, but, you know, what that amounted to was making all of us poor. Mm-hmm. He said, if we want a strong <laughs> China, I think he appealed very strongly to the nationalist argument, right? He said, if we want a strong China, if we want a China that will be influential in the world, we need to develop China's economy. And his trips to the United States and to other Western countries drove home this point by showing just how far behind China had become in science and technology. Mm-hmm. So he most emphatically did not say, okay, now we're going to become a capitalist country. What he said was, we're going to modernize our socialist economy. We're, we need to catch up to the rest of the world. And if some people get richer in the process, that's not a bad thing, mm-hmm. which, which of course is quite radical. Mm-hmm. Um, his opponents were not always convinced. There were many, many orthodox Maoist opponents who just didn't buy this argument. And for them, you know, he, in, that, in those cases, he had to maneuver them out of power. Um, he had to shunt them off into positions where they couldn't do much harm. And he was largely successful in that precisely because, you know, most Chinese, we don't really have opinion polls, but it seems quite clear that most Chinese really were eager to improve their standard of living. And so they were, they tended to um, undermine Maoist efforts to keep the old status quo in place. And they tended by their actions to support what Deng Xiaoping was promoting. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is a great mystery from the kind of comparative perspective. And, and because the, the Russians certainly were apprised that uh, the liberalization of their economy might have great benefits, but it's not clear – well, it's certainly clear that the leadership never supported this, even as Gorbachev was getting off the plane after he'd basically been kidnapped. He was still talking about socialism. Uh, he, I mean, he didn't realize what was going on, that he had basically been deposed. And I, it's not even clear to me that the sort of the masses of people would have accepted this the way the Chinese did. Uh, so something very peculiar about Russia there, I think. And I don't know – again, I go back to my friend's statement that Russia was destroyed – or the Soviet Union was destroyed by idealism. There's really something to that. 
I think. I, I think there is. I yeah. think there is. Um, I think a lot of it also had to do with the traumas of, of, of Khrushchev's approach to de-Stalinization. You know, um, he tried to do it. Uh, he, he caused a lot of turmoil and, and, and problems, especially for the elite. And so when Brezhnev staged his counter coup and put himself in power, the implicit bargain was that, you know, I, Brezhnev, I'm not going to rock the boat here. We're just going to let this thing go on pretty much the way it is. And I'm not going to shake things up. There will be some benefits for everyone. Um, and we'll just cling to what we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Deng Xiaoping came to power uh, in 1978 um, as someone who had personally um, served Mao very, very closely and very intimately. He had seen Mao up close. And so he understood very well Mao's human weaknesses. And then he had been a victim of Mao's um, very, very uh, arbitrary treatment of his own colleagues and, you know, become a victim of his political persecution. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point, Deng realized, like many other senior people in the party, that that the course they were on was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think you know Mao was so much crazier in a lot of the things he did than 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 some of the Soviet leaders yeah. were that he almost left the, the 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 generation that succeeded him no choice but to be reasonable and pragmatic mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people were so sick of this extreme approach to policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting. That's thesis. kind of yeah. a theory. That, that, well, it's a it's an interesting theory, and I I think that you it, it is one it it is true that after Stalin and even Stalin himself, if you buy Lenin Stalin continuity, that the the, the Soviet leaders had a certain uh, a set of things that they did, and they always did them. They, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't depart. There was no cultural revolution, as you see in, 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 uh, in China. They, d- they just didn't depart from the script that had basically been laid down by Stalin. And the script was yeah. things like collectivize and put a lot of money in heavy industry and make sure everybody has enough sausage and make sure that uh, you know, the country is reasonably well defended and that the Communist Party runs everything. I mean, they, they, these were, again, they were a very, very small set of tools that seemed to work in the Russian context better than right. they did in this kind of arbitrary way that, that, um, that Mao ruled China. So I, I find that very convincing. I hope somebody picks that one up. So uh, let's move now to uh, somebody who's been in the news a lot recently, uh, and that is um, Margaret Thatcher. I don't know why people call her Maggie. Uh, I don't think she ever called herself that. Um, but uh, Margaret <laughs> Thatcher, can you tell us a little bit uh, about uh, her and the revolution that she wrought? Certainly. Well, I think she was called Maggie because uh, that was originally a, a name that her opponents tried to yeah. apply to her. Mm-hmm. And it so often happened, then her supporters uh, actually accepted it rather in a, in a more affectionate sense. But she certainly never referred to herself that yeah. way. You're absolutely right. Um, I think she was really a revolutionary figure. She saw herself as, long before you know Sarah Palin ever got the idea, she saw herself as a rebel and a maverick within her own government. Um, and she talked a lot about how, um, in fact, once she even referred to herself as the, as the head, what was it, of, an, of a rebel faction within an established <laughs> government. Uh, yeah. Pretty astonishing stuff yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. And yeah. She's, she's, of course, a hugely important figure because she um, entered office determined to do away with the ruling economic consensus, which had you know, dominated British public life since 1945 when the Labour Party came in and built the modern welfare state. Um, by the time Thatcher arrived, that welfare state was showing, showing its age. And she determined to, uh, 
to create a completely different kind of, of, of England where trade unions did not rule the roost, um, where uh, uh, the, the government no longer controlled the commanding heights of the economy through public ownership, where there would be much more room for personal initiative and entrepreneurship. And I think that she is the most important figure in paving the way for the so-called market revolution of the 1980s um, that you know, brought this worldwide liberalization of financial markets and uh, enshrined in many ways the Washington consensus as, the dominant, as, as a dominant economic philosophy in the world. And I think we're still, we're still living in that period that she helped to usher in. Um, and in some ways, I think maybe that period may be coming to an end um, since the economic challenges that we face today are very, very different from the ones that she and her like faced at that time. Uh, but there's no question that she that she played an absolutely vital role in affecting that transformation. And I would contend that a little more controversially, that she didn't just change England, but she, she also had an enormous influence internationally, especially in Eastern Europe and Latin America, where people often, uh, even if they disagreed with her, still defined themselves perhaps in opposition to her program. Mm -hmm. So I think she's an absolutely crucial figure, and I... I think she's a global figure. I disagree very strongly with the people who see her as a kind of parochial English politician who, you know, maybe had some role in, in the Cold War, but, um, you know, not so much in the spread of market ideas. I think actually that was one of her most important uh, functions. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the, uh, her international reputation because I, actually, I was listening to the BBC uh, right when she died and during her funeral, and they, they, they did go to places like Eastern Europe especially – uh, and talk to people who uh, very much revere her. Yes. And, and, and they point to her as somebody who helped crack communism, basically. Um, yes, um, I had some Russian friends visiting from Moscow recently, and we started talking about Thatcher, and it really is amazing how, how much Russians adore her. Yeah. Um, there, there's just something about her character that appeals to them. I think the strong leader who, you know, at the same time wasn't so strong that she abused her own people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I'm not. I'm not even really sure quite what it was, but um, you know, it's important to remember that that whole label, the Iron Lady, yeah. was actually given to her by the Soviet right. military so, yeah. newspaper Krasnaya Zvezda mm -hmm. yeah. as a kind of uh, you know insult, and she gladly accepted it, and you know was happy to be called that for the rest of her career. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a very interesting relationship there between her and the Russians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit in the closing minutes of the interview about again the grand thesis, and that is there's something that ties these four figures uh, together, and that is a kind of uh, again, the, the terminology is always rather bothersome. A reaction against progressivism broadly construed. Is there any argument yeah. to be made that there's something that holds this era together, these four individuals and uh, their um, and their their actions and then legacy? Well, of course, this is where my book attempts to be a bit provocative, um, and basically, I'm making the argument that these that these figures were not just simultaneous, but that they actually had some deeper um, commonalities to them. And what I see that's very similar about all of them is that they were all responding to a long revolutionary age where uh, these uh, socialist, and communist, in the case of England, social democratic ideas really dominated the discourse, or at least were one of the dominant 
uh, elements in, in global political and economic discourse. And the way I put it in the book is that the reaction, and I think all of my characters can be described as reactionaries mm-hmm. in some sense. Um, Thatcher happily embraced that term, by the way. She loved being called a reactionary. Um, that they were all uh, part of a, of a sort of counter-revolutionary moment. And what I say in the book is that this counter-revolutionary moment took two forms. Uh, there were two, two, two kind of lines of, atta- of attack, counterattack. <laughs> one was markets, and one was religion. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And what's important to keep in mind is that I'm not saying they're all the same, right? I don't, I'm not saying that Ayatollah Khomeini and Margaret Thatcher were the identical thing. But I think it is striking how um, the thing they were reacting to was very similar, Right. You know, the Shah's modernization program, which was an attempt to forestall a communist revolution by borrowing a lot of communist ideas, uh, you know, that was about public ownership and about government control of certain commanding heights of the economy. And even when it allowed for markets, it was very interventionist and very, you know, planning oriented. Um, and, and, and it gave a lot of lip service to, to kind of left-wing ideas. Part of the Shah's program was also about, you know, women's rights and the literacy core that was going to teach everyone to read and write in a very top-down sort of way. And um, I, I, I was just kind of fascinated by the fact that all of my heroes in the spirit are responding to similar challenges. They're responding to secular, modernizing, top-down, you know, state-oriented uh, uh, models of development. And the market counter-revolutionaries are saying, well, this is ridiculous. This is not the way to run an economy. And uh, Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping, although completely different figures, in private are saying strikingly similar things to the people (laughs) in their immediate entourages. You know, Deng Xiaoping is saying, well, you know what? We need to pay a better wage for better performance. We need pay differentials. We need to reward innovation. Um, some people are going to get richer than others. There's going to be internal competition between different regions of China, and that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite striking to some of Thatcher's corresponding rhetoric about promoting uh, entrepreneurship. Now, John Paul II, as I said, was a great advocate of human rights. Ayatollah Khomeini definitely was not. He was much more concerned about the dominance of uh, Quranic law and the clergy. And yet both of these men, that important distinction made, both of these men, uh, uh, you know, had some striking similarities. Both were mystics within their own religious traditions. Um, Both had very, very, uh, were very concerned to counter the rising tide of secularization. Um, Both wanted to enforce a certain degree of doctrinal conservatism, even as they uh, they advanced some very unorthodox ideas. And so I was very struck by that parallel as well. Um, and of course, Ayatollah Khomeini and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan have a lot of things in common. We don't really even have to prove that. Um, uh, their, their programs were really quite strikingly similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had read a lot of the same people and were operating according to the same texts. And um, those two, mo- those two uh, currents of thought influenced, influenced each other very, very strongly. So I'm not saying that they're all the same, but I'm just trying to draw attention, perhaps in a somewhat uh, crude way. I don't know. We'll see what, see what all of you readers think. 
um, to the point that all of these heroes are in their own ways reacting to a similar moment and advancing programs that have some very interesting parallels and similarities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher is not Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> yeah, no. But no. they are reactionaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and no, what does are. that mean? Yeah. I, I quite agree with everything you said. I, I would, let me ask you this more controversially, I think, uh, as a historian, when I look at these four figures, as you put them together, and I had never put them together, so kudos to you, uh, what I see is the the death of what is really a Marxist project and the accommodation of reality by political leaders, because the fact of the matter was collectivism did not produce the most uh, productive economies. And you just mentioned secularism, the rising tide of secularism. Well, it was pretty clear by 1979 that it wasn't rising very fast and that people needed religion and wanted it. And that both markets and religions were what we would call, but I think leftists probably wouldn't, very modern. They were modernity. Yes. Yeah, th- this is what it looks like. And so the scales fall from their eyes, and they're like, this is what modernity is. It's religious people who are entrepreneurs. Um, yes. and, and, yeah, and, and all of the, that really brings all three of them, or all four of them together, is that they realize this. Like, this is the way things actually work, as opposed to the way we want them to work. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And, and really, this program starts with Marx, and it's carried forward by a lot of people who, I'm, you know, again, I'm not d- judging them or anything. It was a fine idea. But this idea that we'd all be atheists and live in a commune, uh, that's just not the way that it turned out. The modern world was full of people that believed in God and uh, wanted uh, to start businesses. You know, that's, the, yeah. that, that's what Nicely it was. Put. Yeah, right. And I, I can't, you know, that, that's what the world was. They were just saying, this is the way things are. I mean, I don't know about illusion or anything like that, but this is the way things are. And, and, uh, and it was really quite remarkable to see it in 1979. And I thank you very much for pointing it out because I'd never, like I said, I'd never put these four people together. Um, and I wanted to put five of them together with Reagan, but you throw him out. So, um, <laughs> well, that's because, another book. Yeah. Okay. That's another book. That's fine. Well, uh, I have to tell you, we've taken up a lot of your time, Christian, and I want to, uh, have a chance to ask our traditional final question on new books in history. And that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm not working on a book right now, perhaps because my life has gotten a little crazy. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reporting for the New York Review of Books, which is uh, a publication I contribute to from time to time, about the Boston Marathon bombers, mm-hmm. oddly enough. So my time lately has been completely consumed with reporting about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a fascinating story, and my, I've been able to use my own experience as a former Moscow correspondent in reporting this story. Mm-hmm which has given me a very, very interesting lens for looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I doubt very much that my next book will be about this story because it just doesn't seem like enough of a story to justify a book mm-hmm. from, from what I've learned so far. But it's certainly been an extremely exciting chapter in my, in my life as a reporter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the next book goes, I'm tossing around some ideas, but I'm not quite sure what I want to do yet. I'd love to have your audience suggests some things. Well, I hope they do, and uh, I'm sure that they'll really enjoy this interview. You're very eloquent, and the book is terrific, uh, and I really hope that people uh, go out and buy it. And whatever you produce next, I can guarantee I'll probably read it, and I hope that they will, too. Um, Today, we've been talking with Christian Carl, who's the author of Strange Rebels, 1979, and the birth of the 21st century. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this podcast, uh, but I especially want to thank Christian for being on the show today. Thank you, Christian. Well, thank you, Marshall. I, I really couldn't be happier. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. 